In the meditation Swami recommends for this lesson, he talks about the power of the divine consciousness through a master to calm the storms of life. That doesn't mean to shy away from them, to be afraid of them, to be frightened or intimidated. It's a completely different reality. It's to face the storms of life with sufficient energy that your field of consciousness can no longer be agitated. In the masters, their field of consciousness is so calm that they can literally calm the elements. So Swamiji suggests in this meditation, think of calming the waves or the mighty winds of maya. Visualize yourself standing in the midst of all turmoil and addressing it calmly from your own center. Say to it, peace, be still. Fill an aura of calmness emanating from you and calming all the waters of delusion. Maya itself is like an ever-moving ocean of likes and dislikes, of pleasure and pain, of success and failure, fulfillment and disappointment. Stand in the middle of that sea and project out over it the calm inner realization of the ever-present sameness of the Divine Spirit, the ever-new, ever-present sameness of the Divine Spirit. Now say this affirmation. I stand unshaken amidst the crash of breaking worlds. Amidst the crash of breaking worlds. I stand unshaken amidst the crash of breaking worlds. I stand unshaken amidst the crash of breaking worlds. Om. Peace. Amen. Today we're on Lesson 25, Creating Opportunities. So this is either, we either have one more class after this or two. I won't know until next week. And then there may be still a place for a summary class, but we'll see. Um, In this course series, and then of course we're starting up, uh, for those of you who just read Swami's book, Rescuing Yogananda, which I presume you all got on the internet, um, he refers to the notes that he wrote to train the monks in the life uh, at SRF and how they were then taken over by the nuns. That's the notes. Those are the notes that we're going to use for our next class series. So it's a really marvelous set of ideas for how to live the spiritual life created by Swamiji. I have to figure out how to how and whether and in what way to to share with you the printed material, but we'll work on that. Um, I just came back from L.A. this morning, so I was there from Sunday morning until now, so I thought I'd just give you a little idea of how Swami's doing and what the scene is down there, because it was fun, and I know you all want to know. Swamiji himself is doing very well. He's, He's pretty much in a constant state of bliss right now, not just merely happy in the way he's always been, but his, his consciousness is, has really moved over into something different. Um, his body is still um, fighting him. He's having a lot of trouble with bas- basically muscle spasms in his back, and it's just a little hard to figure out, and still having some breathing difficulties, but they're working on it. It's not, well, the back pain is as bad as ever, but the breathing isn't quite as bad, but he's, he's very, um, at the same time, as he himself says, he's just blissful all the time. I mean, he can, he does have, he has more difficulty than he's ever had just sort of dealing with things because of that. You know, he, he, he's disinclined to eat sometimes. And we were sitting at the table, he, he comes back, but he sort of forgets that he's there to eat and then he'll start eating. It's not like he's really, you know, out on outside of this world, but his, his vibration is very different. And when he talks and teaches, he's just sort of pushing energy through that bliss. It's, it's quite interesting to be around, and I'm sure you can see what the program was. On Sunday, 
it was his his uh, anniversary, 62 years of when, the day he met Master. The program was um, there were there were less than a hundred people there. I'm not really sure what the actual numbers were, um, but it was a very successful day, and Swamiji was Im- immensely pleased with the experience of it. It was very exp- inspiring. I've never counted the number of people in the room. It never seems worth doing to me. What you count is whether or not you feel the presence of Master and like there's a, a sense of inspiration because that's really where the, where the future of whatever we do is. And in that respect, we were way up there. Um, he came in at um, uh, late on Saturday night. They did, Swamiji decided he really wanted to have the divine romance played on the piano. And in the end, um, Todd Billingsley went down with me on Sunday morning. So we caught the earliest plane we could. These are business flights and nobody goes down for Sunday morning business meetings. But we left here at 9.30 or something and Swamiji started speaking at 11. And we got out of the taxi at 10.58 in front of the hall. And Todd and I came in the front door and Swami came in the back door just exactly at the same moment. We were both walking into the hall perfectly. So Todd was almost immediately just swept up pulling the music out of his uh, backpack and going up on the stage to play. Uh, and they had he accompanied Swami in a few songs. Swamiji's singing voice has become extremely interesting. Uh, he, he, has, he doesn't sing the way he used to. He, he can't sing the way he used to sing. I don't think he has that kind of uh, power in his diaphragm or in his lungs. But his voice has become extremely deep. And when he sings, it's like this, this, like it was at the Ford Theater when he sang. There's just this huge resonance around his voice. I, I was, he was sort of asking about it. To me, it sounds like he, he's like, he, he's not exactly singing in a huge cavernous space, but it's almost sort of like that huge cavernous space is in his voice, if that makes any sense. It just sort of, his voice, his voice is a, a big field of sound. And it's not exactly physical. This is my personal impression. So we sang a few songs and they were just really lovely. And he was very relaxed. It was a, 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 a very informal setting. It was a woman's club. So it was just like this open room with a small stage and folding chairs. And so there was not, no formality about it. He was just a few feet from us and we were all just sitting around in a very easy way. So he was very informal. And he sat up on the stage and he talked the morning program went two and a half hours, which was an hour longer than anybody thought it would. That included quite a good bit of music at the end, and also then he had Todd play the whole um, Divine Romance. And then he had the little group of singers sing. Not the first movement, but the third movement, where there's a, a few lines. It was just, it was very beautiful. And then he left and uh, went home for lunch, and he was scheduled to come back at 4. By that point, it was like 12.30. Maybe it was 1.30. It would be at 1.30, which was a lot. So they had planned this afternoon of programs that were supposed to be given by the likes of me and my cronies. Um, but we lost a whole hour of that time, so everybody was quickly readjusting. Um, we ended up with a one-hour program in which um, Jyotish, um, Jyotish in, in this order, Jyotish, Durga, Vidura, me and then Davy each spoke for just around 10 minutes, you know, to fill an hour. It was, I must say, it was really dynamic. And it was the first time anybody had heard collectively sort of the team of teachers that are also going to be in Los Angeles to sort of see what else is going on. And I think it was, uh, I think it was really both intriguing and exciting for people who were newer and didn't know us to sort of realize that there's more happening than just Swami. Um, it's not just him, but there's this whole other energy. And we were all at the top of our game, is the only thing I can say. It was, it was a, a really magnificent hour. And if they, if they post it on the internet, I highly advise you to go listen to it, because it was just, it was extremely entertaining. Um, Durga and Vidura just were, they were fabulous. Jyotish and Devi always are. Durga and Vidura are less well-known because they don't speak as often, but they were just wonderful. Um, so, uh, then, and then Swami came back at four, and he was supposed to, we were just supposed to have a blessing ceremony. He was either going to individually bless people, or he was going to just be there to bless. But then first he spoke for another hour. He, talked to, he, he told the whole story of the time tunnel, 
He sort of sat there and he told the story of the time tunnel. And uh, then he answered questions. And I think he was just going to go on all night. And uh, Sean had to say, excuse me, sir, but we have to be out of this building in an hour, so we need to do something. So then he sat and individually blessed every person. Just sat in a chair and let people kneel in front of him. And you know, it was just totally radiantly giving to everyone. People put flowers on the altar. All this also, in a very positive sense, was very informal because it was all just ad hoc. You know, we just stuck an altar up there, which, which, which actually was nicer because there was just such a all-of-us-together kind of feeling. There was no sense of distance. So everybody got to be blessed by him. Um, and uh, then that was the end of it. So it was a really terrific day. And then Swamiji was... Uh, what happened that night? Oh, we just... The, he, he, he has this home where he's staying. His, his living situation is really ideal. And, it, and the whole um, situation where he lives is really you know, come into a nice focus. There's about five or six people living in a, a big house and then across a very nice, extremely nice, completely private backyard. All the houses in that area have big fences or big hedges. So the, and everything faces in. So, you know, the whole backyard is completely private and his little house is on the other side of the backyard. So he lives in this very, very uh, spacious cottage um, all to himself but you just walk across the grass and you're at the other house. So his staff is on one side and he's on the other. And uh, it's just the rhythm of the house is working really well. And he's very comfortable there and everybody's really helping out. And the woman who's hosting us, Baravi, it's all working well for her and for and her children. She has these two young girls who were just absolutely delighted to have aunts, uncles, grandfather, and older brothers and sisters. And Brian McSweeney is there and Apparently every evening about five he has a standing date with the girls to play cards and you know it's but it's just it's good energy and the girls are very in tune with what's happening. Seven maybe. So <clears throat> you know some ch- small children might either be resentful or restless, but it's been just the opposite for them. And they're <coughs> they seemingly belong to our family. Swami's just treating them like any other devotees. You know he's relating to them appropriately, but they're just like part of the family. And they're very spirited people, so it's really fun. So all of it is just sort of beginning to come into being. Whereas until now it was just scrambling to try to make it work. And Sean and Brooke are scheduling classes. And then next Sunday starts his um, Sunday morning satsangs. So we'll just see how that goes. Well, we're working on it. And I forgot to ask David this morning, but we're working with the plan that would have us have from 10 to 11, we'll have something that resembles the Sunday service, and 11 will just project Swamiji's live, live satsangs. Because, I mean, why not? There's no telling how long they'll go either. Because he, once he starts, he just seems to put out energy until, he's, until somebody stops him or until somehow he feels like he's finished. I guess, the, you know, in the morning he went two and a half hours and then stopped. But um, uh, we have to hope that the that they're upgrading the uh, technical side of it. They, 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 are sh- they are changing how they stream it live. So we're, we are getting, we have gotten a projector, we are wiring this building for the internet and we're going to get a big screen. It'll be daylight, but we, we tested if we put the screen back and turn off all the electric lights, it's, it's a pretty clear image. So it, it could be really marvelously fun. So we'll see what happens. He's scheduled, you know, every every Sunday for the next six months, maybe. So we'll see. But now that he got the book finished, Rescuing Yoga Energy is now, it's ready, all of that. That's it. Solidly follow him with our consciousness and keep him strong. His body is just weak. I mean, he, he can walk, but just barely. He needs someone right next to him getting up and down. The, the only unfortunate thing about its cottage is there's a number of stairs. It's up on a higher level. It's sort of like it's, oh, it's over the garage, that's why. So it's really a second-story cottage, and there's stairs. So he always has to be gotten up and down those stairs. Apparently, he was walking up and down those stairs just like one or two days ago. Prior to that, he just had to be carried. Um, so he's improving, even though he's, he was weak when I saw him, but he was still improving. No, he's having... Had pain in his back, but there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with the skeleton. It seems to be muscular. 
So they're working on it. Okay, I thought you all would want to know that. Um, So, now, lesson 25, creating opportunities. It's a very interesting lesson. I mean, a great deal of this lesson is about the voice, about how to use your voice, how to project your voice, how to make your voice better, how to pay attention to the accent of your voice. And I, I was trying to reflect on it from several different angles. I mean, um, and I always go back to where these, this whole course started because this whole course starts with the question of karma because everything is about the kind of magnetism that we have in the present and the magnetism that we have in the present is the accumulated result of all the magnetism that we've had in the past and the magnetism that we have in the future is going to be the effect of whatever magnetism we're creating in the present. Uh, Today is the result of yesterday. Tomorrow is the result of today. And as we've talked about many times in here, this isn't just such a... a, uh, that doesn't happen so immediately. In fact, um, instant karma, which is the sort of phrase that... um, is is the colloquial phrase within the Ananda context, maybe everywhere, I don't know, is, is very good karma. Because if the consequences of your actions come to you quickly, that's a very good sign for several reasons. One is, if the consequences come to you quickly, then you still have a very clear sense of cause and effect, and you know what brought things to you. That's one, and that's helpful. And the second thing is, it means that there aren't a lot of uh, conflicting cross-currents of ego, that the field is pretty clear, so something that happens today manifests tomorrow. Swamiji often tells the story, as he told again this on Sunday, of the time when he was allowed himself to become off-center with enthusiasm for this motorhome that had been given to him for his cross-country t- travels, and how he was, he was so... He was, he was allowing happiness to be created by the motorhome, and even as he was walking down the aisle of the motorhome laughing with delight, he knew that there would have to be a counterwave of karma. And a day or two later, when the motorhome... Um, when there was a, a jarring movement in the motorhome when it was supposed to be parked, and he fell and broke his finger, as soon as he, his finger hit and he felt it break, he started laughing again because he knew, well, I allowed it to make me happy, so now it hurt me. And he just felt like now it's all settled and we can just go on with our lives. But the fact that that could happen to him so fast was because there's not a lot of um, other unresolved waves in his life. It just everything for him remains on an even um, keel here. In fact, um, Master, he quotes Master here from the Rubaiyat, karma's unalterable decrees govern human destiny only as long as man continues to live through his senses in reaction to outer events. For such a person, moral reasoning is centered in ego consciousness. Scriptural learning is centered in ego consciousness. Self-pitying tears are centered in ego consciousness. Ego consciousness is the problem. The greater its hold on the mind, the greater karma's hold on our lives. A very interesting statement, which I'll come back to, but it's interesting to me that he's closing up the course, you know, by coming back to this question of the inexorability of karma by saying, not quite. It's not so inexorable. He quoted Master once as saying that for ordinary people, a, a follows B and B follows C. He said, for devotees, it doesn't work like that. For devotees, because, and he means really sincere disciples who have begun to live outside of ego consciousness, the grace of God just comes in and makes things happen, and it doesn't always follow in a, a logical sequence of action and reaction, because once we stop living in that world of action and reaction, that karmic law doesn't apply in the same way. I mean, it's very difficult to get one's mind around these things. Yesterday, or Sunday, when Swami opened it up to questions, of course, someone asked, is there free will, or is everything just determined by karma? So Swamiji started talking about the Bhrigu reading he's had and the Agastya reading that he had recently. Bhrigu was a great sage, Agastya is a great sage. Both of them lived thousands of years ago. And he was talking specifically about the Bhrigu first, where... This, this um, little leaf document, this bit of um, prophecy, was written literally about 5,000 years ago, and it described 
Swamiji, it described his brothers, his fathers, the conditions of his, of his father's life, the country he was born in, the name of his guru, the name he would have. So Swamiji starts by saying this, like, how much free will can there be if 5,000 years ago he could say exactly where he'd be? Plus, and then he, he, I don't know if he mentioned it then, but he mentioned it later. He actually had two readings from this, this Brighu Samhita, it's called, this book of prophecy written by Brighu. He had one in one city, and then some months later, perhaps, I don't know the sequence, he went to another place, because the book is distributed, book is the wrong word because it's not bound, but they're bundles of these sheets, and uh, sheets of palm leaf, or now it's been copied over onto other things. So he goes to this other place, and it starts by saying, I've already given him a reading. I gave him a reading somewhere else. And the most amazing of all is, is the one that happened to a friend of Swamiji's, where he said, where the reading said, at this moment there will be a thunderclap. And there was a thunderclap. Out of a clear blue sky, there was a roll of thunder. So you put that into the thought, how much free will do we have? Where do we go? What can we possibly do? And uh, so, so I've sort of been answering the question more like, no, we, we have almost none, because our own actions will predict what our subsequent actions will be. Now, that's not quite the same as being a, a, a pawn of destiny. It's not like something outside of us is moving us around. But he was saying, he used the example that we, we tend to do what we like, but why do we like those certain things? Why do we get up in the morning and think this is the right outfit to put on it? So I'm going to use the example of a man choosing a tie, but as he pointed out, nobody wears ties anymore, but when people used to wear ties, he said, you get up and you choose a certain tie because all of the forces of your karma lead you to feel like that's the right one at that moment. And even that gesture could be predicted. Isn't that just amazing? Now that makes us feel like sort of where do we go and what do we do? But we do break out of it I actually was trying to think about this because the question of free will for me personally is never anything that I actually asked. It doesn't mean that, you know, it's, it, 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 I mean, it's a very good thing to ask. It's sort of interesting that I never asked it. I, I've, never, I, I've had little inclination to speculate about things that didn't have a practical purpose in the moment. And, and the question that always drove me was, well, how can I be more happy? How can I be less afraid? And so whether or not I had free will didn't seem to be the issue so much as I don't feel very good today. What can I do today to make myself feel better? How can I ease the stress of my life? And, and the, the philosophical picture seemed less important to me than whether or not specific actions brought specific results. And when uh, that, that comment that I said at the beginning was T- today is, is the result of yesterday and tomorrow is the result of today was one of the first principles of self-realization that I learned from Swami Vivekananda in his book called Karma Yoga, actually, in which he just talked about this cause and effect relationship creating the cycle. So it, it became apparent to me from that that regardless of, of what the greater mechanism is, we can step into it and have some influence over the direction. We don't have to feel like I'm a helpless pawn because there's an obvious and predictable pattern that, that of cause and effect that we can get into. Now, here's a further refinement of it, which is that once we begin to understand that what we're really trying to do with our willpower is transcend ego consciousness, then we actually begin to move into an area of real freedom. And the real freedom that we move into, and this is where it gets complicated for some people to understand, is not really that those karmic waves won't keep rolling, but it's like they'll hit a beach and we won't be standing there. It's the only thing I can say. We'll be floating a little bit above it, or it won't affect us in the same way. We'll be surrounded by some kind of a sphere that the same waves will come, but we won't experience them in the same way. And that's, that's, the, that's the whole key to it. We don't experience them in the same way. So we don't have to stop the waves because the waves will keep rolling. But since we don't experience them in the same way, everything is shifted. Our ego is diminished. Our ego is diminished, so there's no person there to experience it. And, and that's where Swami talks about in other places. 
that bondage is to the ego. And as long as we're trying to make the ego have free will, the ego itself can never, you you can never have a sense of freedom as long as you're inside the ego. Because limitation is the definition of lack of freedom. I have a friend who's imprisoned. And obviously, his choices are extraordinarily limited. You know, that's the definition of being imprisoned. His choices are limited. He lives in this little cell. He can only be let out at certain times. He can only go certain places. He can only do certain things. I mean, the thought of him, and I often think of him both to pray for him and also because it's a a very... um, stimulating point of contrast to whatever I think is making me uncomfortable. Oh, gee, it's hot today. I think, well, heavens, Asha, at least you can walk outside and go swimming. And then I think of him in Folsom Prison. It's hot where he is too, but there's nothing he can do about it. But in prison means lack of options. And, and we see it physically there. He has so few physical options. But to be imprisoned, you also become a prisoner of your own feelings. You become a prisoner of your own rage. You become a prisoner of your own desires. You become a prisoner of your own emotions. There's all these different ways in which you are suddenly limited and you're, you have a, a tremendous lack of options. And so we, we tend to think that if we have free will, we have all these options. That's what free will means. I can do whatever I want. But we don't understand that doing what we want is really the most, um, the ultimate form of confinement, which is be, to be compelled by our likes and dislikes. And also, to, when we're identified with our ego, the soul is, well, by definition, imprisoned. Because the soul is infinite. The soul is uh, you know, not burned by fire, not frozen by cold not affected by hunger, not driven by likes and dislikes, not compelled by desire. It's completely free. It's, it's infinite in its reality. The ego is totally imprisoned by all of the self-definitions we've hemmed in around ourselves. So as long as, the, as, as we're asking ourselves, can, the, can, can I have, do I have free will or is it all determined? The answer is as long as you are in a state of limitation, You can't possibly have freedom. And limitation is the ego. It's interesting when I, you know, without how, it's interesting to to reflect back on one's own uh, progressive awareness because it, it reminds one again and again that these are instinctive realities that we discover. These are not dogmas that we learn or intellectual things that we become familiar with. These are practical realities that we discover and I reflect back on my growing up years and and what I wanted out of life and I emphasized a few moments ago talking about the fact that the the word happiness for me was always the the star that I was following and it it refined itself gradually but that was how I was able to understand it and to a lesser extent to a less conscious extent I was trying to run away I'm trying to get away from fear I thought about fear. I remember when I was in college just thinking to myself that the um, most detrimental uh, emotion possible was fear. That was one of the sort of personal revelations I had. I couldn't find a way that fear was beneficial. You know, almost any other emotion I could try to see something positive but not fear. And the second of the principles that I learned from Vivekananda was actually from Jesus. Love casts out fear. When you love, you're not, you can't be afraid. I mean, that which you love, love overcomes it. Love overcomes fear. And uh, that for me was extremely compelling because <clears throat> that was an inner reality. So I had all these thoughts in my mind as a younger person about what I look back, I call it self-expansion. And I was looking for human love and human family. I had a nice family, but I, I thought, you know, I'll get married and I'll have many children. And many children was always the picture in my mind. Until one day I realized that what I was actually looking for was self-expansion. I really didn't want many children. I wanted to be, to be more than I was. And it occurred to me that you could only have so many children anyway. And even if you did, it was a finite number. 
And once, once you, you made that circle, even if it was 10 or 12 children, it still had a very finite ring around it. And it would still feel confined. And so gradually, of course, I realized what I really wanted was to break the inner confinement. But you see, that's how the, the, the soul inspires the human intellect. And you, you sort of follow these things out. In my own personal karma, in this lifetime, I never had to follow all that. I never had to have all those children and figure it out. I think, obviously, I'd figured it out in the past. And it didn't take very much for me to say, oh, yeah, I remember that. Even though I didn't have a past life memory, just something in me remembered, oh, that didn't work. And that's, that's what it is. It's like, oh, that didn't work. And that's how you feel it. It's like, I'm not, I don't want to do that anymore. I'm not compelled to do that anymore because I already know where it's going and it didn't work. And so we start looking for something else that's going to work better. And what does work mean? It means that it brings us fulfillment and happiness that we're really seeking. So what Swamiji is now talking about in this lesson is just creating opportunities, which is a very, it's a very interesting title. When he created this course, um, some of you may remember he was in the hospital in, in India at the time, and the doctor asked him, how can I make money honestly? And Swami had the inspiration to write this course. The man actually said, how can I make the money I need without cut? I mean, I have to cut corners. What do I do? But Swamiji, the first thing he wrote out was all the titles. He had the, he had the, the 26 lessons. And this one with the last one, 25, creating opportunities. He just got it all at once. It all came to him at the same time. So what we have now is here we're standing... And we have all these principles of how to work. But he, he's telling us now that we need to create magnetism around ourselves because that's what opportunities are. Opportunities are, mag, you know, the magnetic things, things come to us. An opportunity is something that you perceive because somehow the universe has conspired to open some kind of a door for us. So he's just wanting to give us, and sometimes the yogic principles are so simple um, that we don't, we overlook how, how powerful they can be. Because what Swami is talking to us now in the very beginning part of this lesson, all about how we present ourselves to the universe. He's talking about how do we move through this world. Because how we move through this world is how how the world is going to respond to us. And if we imagine that the world is going to respond to us without our stepping into it with magnetism, then we've learned nothing, basically. This whole manifesting through the power of yoga is that we put forth a certain kind of energy and that creates an energy pattern that the universe begins to adjust to. If you think of it all, it's all an interplay of energy. So whatever we're projecting, that's how the waves are going to form around us. And if we're just moving through life, as one of my friends mentioned it to me, that she was having to learn to become a more magnetic person because her coping strategy from being a, a young girl has, had been to be as invisible as possible. Um, it wasn't that she had a bad family, but she just thought it was easier to get along by, by just trying not to show. And it, it's a funny thing because in all the years that I've known her and worked with her, I realize much of the time what I've tried to do is just push her forward. And she finally said to me, I trained myself my whole life to be invisible because that was my idea of how to, how to get through without, you know, to minimize suffering. You can see how the mind would think that. I'll be as unmagnetic as possible and then at least I won't, att- I won't attract anything. You know, still moving through, making being a success. It was just not, it's not a non-functioning person. But it's just an interesting thing. But now Swamiji's really reminding us and he's starting at the most fundamental level. He's starting with the voice. And this weekend, in fact, because he was singing and because there's this interesting phenomenon about how his voice has deepened out into this expansive, deep sound, most elderly voices shrink, you know, and become raspy. But his um, has, he can sing at much lower notes than he can sing before. He sang on Sunday, life flows on like a river, just because he enjoys singing it, you know. And every time he came to the really deep notes, this look of enormous pleasure would come over his face and he'd really hit those really low notes and then he would laugh and the audience laughed and then he'd move on. (laughs) Just because he's been a singer all his life, so he's very conscious of what his range has been. Now, but later we were having a discussion, he mentions it in here, 
about how absolutely distinctive each person's voice is. You know, some of the sophisticated identity systems are voice recognition systems. They're looking for things that, that can't be faked. Now, of course, why would the voice be so significant? Well, we are made of ohm. We are a manifestation of sound. That's, that's our very nature. And that's one of the reasons that music has such a profound effect upon us. And such, it's such a direct experience. And how it also it, it activates and uses different parts of the brain than speech use. Speech, we say words, and those words have symbolic meaning, and then we have to translate what they mean. And because we all speak English, I speak in English, but... You know, it would be possible to speak in Spanish, but if somebody spoke to me, we spoke to Anna in Spanish, she's understand, and some of you might. But when people speak to me in Spanish, I don't know what those symbols mean. So I I can't understand because I can't translate the symbols. But if a Spanish-speaking person played a melody, I would understand the melody because it's a direct experience. We were in Budapest, David and I, on some journey many years ago. We had... We went from Vienna to Budapest for a few days and we were walking down this mall and there were some gypsies. And, you know, just like about as, uh, what do you say, typical or uh, cliche as you can imagine, gypsy violinists playing there. But it was anything but cliche. It was just an, an astonishing sound. And it was just the, the, the skill of the musician and the feeling behind that music. You know, we, we couldn't have exchanged a word. I didn't know any Hungarian, I guess, that's where we were. I mean, I wouldn't have known whether they were asking for a glass of water or, you know, telling me that the house was on fire. I just wouldn't have any idea what they said in Hungarian. But they played that violin, and I don't know, we were, we were in the same reality because sound is a universal, um, it's an inherent part of who we are. Now, The voice is used in different ways. It's used to produce melody and music and to produce words, and then those words communicate symbolically. But they also communicate merely by the tone and the vibration of what we're doing. And so we we receive no training, really, in our lives, unless you take up music or acting, on how to use the voice. And that's a great distress. But But the voice gradually takes on the quality of who we are. Because the voice is the ohm coming out of us, and whatever specific vibration we're on, that's what we're going to hear. And every individual is unique, and so the unique combination that comes out of their voice can only be made by, the, by all those karmic forces brought to a certain point. Swamiji jokes about how distinctive his voice is, that he'll call someone unexpectedly even in any part of the world, and it, just as soon as there's any sound, you know exactly who you're... Um, dealing with. I had a friend, have a friend, and in the early years of Ananda, we were always together, and I would go by her trailer, Seva, I would go by her trailer, and then we would join, and we would walk over the hill to our, where we worked at the publications business. And uh, sometimes Seva was in a good mood in those days, sometimes she wasn't. She, that was, those were, we were all early, and we were working with different things. I could tell by her cough what mood she was in. Just if if she was not if she was feeling a little depressed or edgy, the sound of her cough would tell me. I mean, that was just the most amazing thing to me. I could hear it right there. Um, I knew her well, of course, but it was also phenomenal to me how transparent we are. Now, the, the, what Swamiji is talking about is of a, a meditation itself is is built around the breath. We often start meditating, working with the breath. Because the breath is between conscious and instinctive. You can't um, hold your breath until you die because if you hold your breath, you will pass out and then when you can no longer control it, you will breathe automatically. So that's not a way to commit suicide. You can't do it that way. Uh, But at the same time, we have a tremendous amount of conscious control over the breath. So it's a transition point between what we're already aware of and the deeper realities that we can become aware of. And of course, the breath has other subtle points. But the voice is another factor like that. The voice is something that to a certain extent is beyond our control because it's the result of everything that we've already done. 
But at the same time, there are many things that a person can do to begin to influence that voice. Swamiji gave advice to one person and, and told that person to speak more in the base register because the consciousness that was causing that person to speak in a higher register was not, not the most desirable consciousness. And just to bring the voice down to a deeper register would in itself be a point of constant remembrance about the right consciousness we're supposed to have. So we all talk, we all use our voice all the time. And it's also an extraordinary, extraordinary interesting method of introspection. You know, to, to really hear the sound of your voice and ask yourself whether that sounds like a nice person to you or not. Is that somebody you'd really like to know? I re- I've shared with you all sort of jokingly, but when I, in the process of creating more harmony in my marriage, I reached the point where I realized that there was a certain tone of voice that I would get into. And as soon as I heard that tone of voice, it didn't matter what the content was, I knew I was wrong. Because that tone of voice indicated a, a, an emotional compulsion that had lost touch with reality. And it was a very helpful thing because I used to get into that and it had a lot of force behind it because it was being compelled out by that emotional response. But I I realized as soon as I was talking like that, I had to stop talking because whatever I said was wrong. And it became extremely helpful to me um, to just hear it. And so we can start sort of observing ourselves and listening and even even if uh, appropriate, record your voice. You know, in the position I'm in, I hear my voice pretty often. That's not true. I don't listen to it very often, but I can whenever I want to. I can hear what my voice sounds like. And, you know, sometimes I think she sounded very relaxed today. And other times I think, wow, she was pretty wound up, wasn't she? You know, just listening to, it's very easy to see it. And now then Swamiji gives us, you know, further even just... Um, mechanical realities because he's constantly emphasizing the importance of placing the voice properly, using the vocal cords properly. I'm in no position to um, teach you any or talk to any of those things very seriously because I don't, I don't know them. And I suffer from not knowing them. Um, but it's, it's, a very, it's an important fact worth learning that one can learn either through singing or speaking. And it's, it's, a, 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 it's, it's a sign of relaxation. And that's what he's really... It's not merely a question of technique, but when he's talking about relaxing the vocal cords and allowing the breath merely to flow out. Now, if you just think of that from a spiritual point of view, what you're doing... I mean, the physical body holds so much tension. And, there's, and even to tense the vocal cords is a sign of, of a certain kind of you know, anxiousness about communicating, anxiousness about relating to the world just anxiousness in all kinds of ways about putting ourselves forward. Either we're too eager or we're too afraid. The capacity, which you see in Swamiji when he sings, which is just really amazing, is that he's just, there's no tension anywhere. He just stands and he opens his mouth and really all he does is breathe, which is what we're always doing all the time. We're always breathing. He just directs his breath musically. And, of course, it's the same when he speaks. He just directs his breath musically without any interference from the physical vehicle. Now, interference from the physical vehicle, really, if you ask, think about it, is ego. Because ego is the soul identified with the body, and that identification causes the body to do all sorts of things. And if it's, you know, depending how it's identified... The, that that relaxation. I watch Dharmdas too. When even when Dharmdas plays the guitar, he only moves as much as is required. It's he's really quite remarkable. You know, he's a great big man and he sings beautifully and he'll stand there and he'll hold the guitar and it just like he's just moving he's he's moving his hands on the frets and he's stroking. But n- no other part of him. There's no wasted energy. It, and then there's just the breath comes out. But the breath comes out as, as song, in his case, as speech, when, what we're talking about now. And then, again, all those tensions, you know, raise the, the caliber of it. They make it, um, they, they, they are received 
as vibrations of consciousness by who's ever listening. So if the vibration is self-concern, if, even if you're saying, oh, how are you? I've been so worried about you. I really wanted to know how you were feeling and it's so important to me that you feel well. Even no matter what you're saying, um, a person will receive the vibration. And so much of communication is really about vibrations. It was, it was very interesting when uh, I found myself in the course of the lawsuits that Ananda was in, once or twice I had a deposition. I really was subjected to very little. But I was in this, this deposition for a little while. And Now, mo- a deposition is when they ask you questions under oath and they're taken down by a court reporter and the lawyers are present. It's a, just a god-awful thing. And uh, it, in normal life, there's a desire to communicate. And that's how we talk to each other. We want to communicate. In a deposition your intention is to withhold everything. I mean, not, not merely that you're trying to be dishonest, but it's like, basically, you don't really want to just help them to know things, generally speaking. And you certainly don't answer what they haven't asked. So you listen very carefully to what they actually ask you, and then you answer the questions they asked you. But if they don't ask you, you don't help them. You don't write their questions for them. At least that was the strategy, and it was a wise strategy that our lawyer gave us. So I, who am such a big communicator, you had to learn to communicate in a completely different way. And I really appreciated how little communication is actually verbal and how much of it is intuition and vibrational. And when you, in a deposition, you have to reduce all communication to verbal. And, and how often, you don't even really know exactly what somebody said. You know what they asked. And in the beginning, you know, I was horrible. Because no matter what question they, no matter what they said, I knew what they were asking. And I was answering the questions that they were asking, really asking, not what they'd actually said. And, you know, the lawyer stamping on my foot a few times, <laughs> you know, just got me, like, keyed into only words. Reducing communication to only words, which is a tiny bit of communication. It's intuition and it's sound. But intuition is also, you see, a large part of sound. Because intuition comes when you are in a unified reality with people and circumstances around you. That's where intuition comes from. That's why it's part of the water element, because the water element can reach out and take the form of, of everything. Water retains its identity but can change its form. And so our consciousness intuitively reaches out and becomes part of whatever we're trying to understand, whether it's the creation of a poem, <clears throat> the singing of the song, or the understanding of a friend. And so, so we're all made of these sound vibrations, so when our voices go back and forth, our consciousness completely blends like that. So whatever actual vibration is in, the, in your voice is what's actually connecting with people. I, I had the experience... <clears throat> I've, I've developed this really fun way of listening to Swamiji talk, especially lately, because lately he often gives more or less the same talk. It's been sort of... For a while, he just talks about meeting Master. He just reminisces about meeting Master and how wonderful it is. And You know, years ago, he used to take a subject and just do these incredibly complicated things with the subject. And now he just wants to speak but devotionally. He's not interested in... That's one of the reasons why he's having some of us come to Los Angeles, because he basically said, I don't want to teach like that anymore. I just want to inspire people with devotion. So he's just sitting there, more or less in the state of bliss, just wanting to inspire people with devotion. So to a very large extent, he doesn't really want to put his mind to what he's saying. He's just putting out vibrations. And talking about Master is a wonderful way to put out vibrations and reminiscing about meeting Master is a wonderful way to put out vibrations. So I've been trying to listen to him in in a twofold way. Um, One is to just be absolutely in the moment. Just in the moment. Not, Not thinking about anything except literally the next sound that's coming out of his mouth. And then also because being so much in the moment and because... I know when he met Master, and I know what they said to each other. I'm not being, I don't want to be 
blasé about the story because I'm not at all. But it's like I don't have to think really hard about the content. I don't have to try to get my mind around what is timelessness and where does free will come from. I mean, he does talk about that also because he answered questions. But just be right in the actual sound of the word and just receive every word just as a vibration of the Spirit. And I'm so conscious of the fact, listening that way, that what he is putting out is vibration. And he's just using his voice to convey vibration. In fact, I've sometimes felt that it's all vibration, and then just sort of at the last second he pastes a word on it, you know, just so that we'll have some idea of what's come to us. I mean, some great holy men never speak. They're silent. They take vows of silence. They never speak. They just put out vibrations. He speaks still, and so we can receive it like that. But it's so instructive, because then you, you just really understand, again, what communication is. And you can extrapolate from that. You ask yourself, what am I putting out? And this is where Swami mentions in here also, tremendous amount of communication is heart to heart. And, and when we're just talking, without, as he describes it, using the breath to go across the heart and then bring the heart's energy out through the voice, then a great deal of what we're trying to make happen won't happen. Okay, now let's take a short break and then we'll sort of pull this together at the end. Okay. So, take a short break. Okay, we're having a, we're having a discussion now about time based on some of the things that I was saying earlier about Swamiji's Agastya reading about free will, which is all part of this lesson, so it's a really good issue. I was remarking that Swami's book, The Time Tunnel, which is a youth, a youth fiction story, fiction in quotes, but it's a, it's a story, and, he, and the time tunnel is based on how you travel through time, and the image he gives there of time is that we tend to think of time as progressive in a, in a linear sort of way, and the image Swami gives in that book, and since he's writing it for young people, it's very vivid, is that time is actually circulating a circle, const, you know, a constant circle around the center point of now. And so you step out of um, what, whatever time frame you're in and you step into the eternal present, into the concept of now, and once you're standing in that position, then all of time, past, present, and future, is accessible to you. So um, Chidambar was saying quite... Um, appropriately, that when Brighu or Agastya reads Swami's future, he's, he's not, they're not really moving through 5,000 years. They're standing in the eternal now, and 5,000 years in the future is just as accessible to them as any other point on that circle. And in the time tunnel, too, he, Swamiji explains how these, these little boys and their friend were able to move through time, is that the way he makes it, it's like a, his physical image, they just get smaller and smaller and smaller until the, you know, they, they get as small as an atom and it looks like a huge universe. And then they physically disappear, but their awareness and their consciousness is unchanged. So they, he describes just in the drama of the story how the little boys are just going through this time tunnel. At first they're alarmed because they realize that they're shrinking. But they're conscious of the fact, and they reassure themselves, these two little brothers, by the fact that their consciousness and their awareness is not being changed. You see how the difference is? I mean, when, when, when you go under anesthesia or something like that, your awareness is lost. Your awareness is just blocked out. And then you wake up later and you've, you've ceased to exist as far as you can tell. But what happened to these boys is they were exactly the same it's just that their, their relation to the physical world shifted. So Swami so puts in this story with some philosophical truth that when they get to the point of non-existence, physical non-existence, in other words, they've completely transcended any identification with the ephemeral world. The ego is the soul identified with the physical body. They've ceased to identify with the physical body at all, and so they are in the infinite self. And in that position, they can move anywhere they want on the circle of time. They move, he has it, physically they move into a place that's the timeless zone. And they sort of appear in this timeless point of timelessness. And they come back into their physical bodies. They go through the tunnel, and then they're there. And they're, 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 they come back into their physical bodies. And then from there, they choose where they're going to go. And they go back into the time tunnel and then go to wherever they're going to go. It's really marvelous. 
But what that has to do with, see, what was the question that you asked after that was? Well, could you change your past? In the time tunnel, which I'm going to use as my Bible for this, they say they're not allowed to change the past. That's always the, the play. That's always the, the, um, the dramatic question when you do a fictional story that's about time travel is, can you change the past? I don't think you can change the past because everything in the universe would have to be different then. You can't, you, if you changed one atom, then everything else, if it's an interwoven web, if you shift one thing over, you know, just a quarter of an inch, then the, abs- the entire universe would have to be different. I... I can't answer that question. I'm better at time than I used to be, but I'm not that good. Yeah? When you're going towards self-realization and you've reached the point where you have all your past lives, uh-huh. then you have to go through those past lives and relive them and realize that each of those individuals was the absolute and not your own ego. But you don't change the conditions of your life. You just change your attitude toward the things that happened to you. I mean, what you're saying is accurate. You don't undo any of that reality you just see it again but you see it for what it really was you see it outside the delusion of it so that's an implication of how the but see it never was what it seemed anyway so there's no need okay here's the answer if you're capable of changing it you you realize there's no point in changing it it's a trick question (laughs) because it never happened anyway it was just a play of light and shadow and that's what the Jivan Mukta is able to do when he wants to become finally free. When they say, look, he, has to, he finally, the, he, he allows a little bit of his past karma, the, what he hasn't yet dissolved with complete realization, he allows it to keep moving him so that he can keep incarnating and helping people. But Master says at any point he could dissolve that karma if he wanted to. But he's one with God. The Jivan Mukta is one with God. He's, he's transcended it all, but he lets a little past karma tie him to this um, world, a little karma remaining to tie him to this world so that he can keep reincarnating. We are in deep waters, friends. But these are really absolutely... But these are wonderful things to contemplate because they're really not that far away from us, not as far as they seem. And they have very, very practical applications because it, it, it puts us into this position of command it's all a matter of awareness. Awareness is an extremely, extremely good word. Swami wrote a little pamphlet once called 26 Keys to Higher Awareness. Because awareness is that it's always there, it's just a question of whether or not we know it. It's, it's, it's like the word realization. Anna was asking me a question in the break about, because she works in the medical field, and she sees interesting things happen where people get cured at times they make decisions not to take treatment and then they get well anyway and she was asking me whether it's the ego or the soul that's guiding you when you do those sorts of things and I was saying there's no clear line we think in material terms we think this is the soul this is the ego it's always the infinite spirit and it's just a question of what we're aware of and the more ego is soul identified with the body the more deeply we identify with a certain reality, the less we can be aware of something else. I was just talking about language. You know, a master can speak any language he chooses to speak. And we've all had lifetimes in which we've spoken many different languages, but we're not aware of those realities. We're too identified with this body. And if you're really identified with a certain body, you you don't understand the feelings of others. I mean, it's just as simple as that. You don't understand how a person could be so different than you because you're identified to this body. You're not aware of realities, of potentials within yourself. We're not aware of our own strength. And, and we just become more aware. You know, sometimes awareness breaks through. Or sometimes there's just a gradual, gradual diminution of limitation and then there's more awareness. But oftentimes a person who's, whose life is threatened, who is in an intense situation, some awareness will break through. I don't need to take this treatment, I'll be fine. Or, I don't need to take this treatment, it's time for me to die. But it's just an awareness of something that was not obvious before becomes true. Maybe as a result of circumstances, who knows? Or an awareness of, I don't need these doctors, I can cure myself. And sometimes just the willpower that I'm just going to go on and be fine can have a tremendous effect on what we're doing. 
Because all of this is about, well, the, the subject is creating opportunities. Swamiji, um, in addition, and I've spent a long time talking about the voice here and the sound waves and all of that because it was so fascinating to me. But he, he has other points here and he's talking about, you know, magnetic opportunity is largely a matter of essentially staying awake, being aware, being observant. Energy, the, the, the single greatest challenge to life and we talked about this last week. He was saying, don't allow yourself to fall into habits. Don't just make a lot of uh, confining precedents for yourself. Stay constantly interested, awake, and aware. And working on the quality of our voice is one of those ways of doing it. Just pay attention to what's going on around us. Don't ever allow ourselves to just fall into a kind of subconscious miasma. Just, but, but know what's going on around you. Pay attention to people. Pay attention to scenery. Pay attention to weather. Pay attention to whatever it is. Pay attention to your own thoughts, to your own reactions with energy. Don't always be looking, and this, is, this was last week, just don't be looking to find a comfortable niche. But part of that we were talking about timelessness is be fresh in the moment. When the first time, one of the things about Swami Kriyananda that's just so interesting, he's always so fresh in the moment. I wrote this up in my book about him and I was talking about when I worked for him as his secretary. And I would see him every day and we had a sort of pattern of the things that I would do and he knew that I had no other priorities. I was completely there to do the things that were needed to do for him. It was only one of my jobs. I had another job as well. But in the time I was with him, he knew completely why I was there. He understood me. But he always acted as if, oh, isn't this wonderful? You've decided to come over. And isn't this remarkable that you're willing to do this work for me? I mean, he didn't behave foolishly, but there was never any part of him that wasn't fully in the now and fully in the moment. He wasn't living in this moment according to the past. He was living in this moment into, here you are. I mean, it said, I wrote it up mostly about how extremely respectful he, he was and is toward people. But the other side of it was, his mind was always fresh. And one of the ways he's, he's able to help people so much is he doesn't like just see us in terms of everything we've been. Because how, how does he know what kind of, I mean, how can, how can you know, how can a person know like what might have happened since the last time you met? And of course, many things have happened, like a whole one minute has passed or 10 minutes have passed. And, you know, you watch marriages just die on the vine because people become what, what Swami calls over-familiar. I know all about you. I know everything you're going to do. I know just who you are. That's so like you. And, and it doesn't give either individual any opportunity to, to grow or change or be themselves or have new discoveries. Or if they do, they have to find other people to share them with because the partner has become so out of present reality that there's no, no place to relate. I was very struck by that with an older couple that I met because both, met, both couples had their full mental faculty, so it wasn't a question of senility. But he related everything in the present to what had happened in the past. And so he was always dragging the present back to the past. And in any conversation with him, he was never quite with you because he was always taking whatever you said and related to what he already knew. Whereas she, same age, same life experience, was just right there. And it wasn't that she didn't refer to her life experience. I was so charmed once. She raised her children, uh, well, in various places, but for the first 13 years of her family, she was in Romania where there was a servant class and so on like that. But even when she came back to America... She always had help in the house, full-time help. And she was talking to her grandniece who was raising a baby. And she just said very quietly, I can't imagine raising children without full-time live-in help. <laughs> you know, It was just like incomprehensible to her that this woman was doing it. I mean, of course, she'd been fortunate enough to have that kind of a life. But still, you know, it was... It was she, she could see the present reality, she related to it, and of course she was completely charming. And the husband was also dear, but not, not so much so because he wasn't with us. He was always somewhere else. Now, magnetism is being able to see, and especially talking about opportunity, something has just come up that wasn't there before. But if you're not paying any attention, you won't see it. And Swami gives the example of um, Emerson talking about the Indians 
who used to live there, his friend saying, what Indians? And then Emerson reaches down and picks up an arrowhead. I mean, he just, there it was. There was an arrowhead right there. Um, I said, Emerson or Thoreau that I'm talking about? Anyway, whoever it was, whichever one it was. I always get them confused. I think it was Thoreau. Must have been more likely Thoreau. But anyway, I never studied them. Thoreau. Yes, of course it was Thoreau. Emerson was the more grand one. Thoreau was the simpler man. And uh, because he was watching. So we have to ask ourselves, you know, are we watching or are we just asleep at the wheel, whatever it is that we're doing? Because opportunities will come to us, but we won't notice them. We just, we just won't even see what they are. I was, in a, I was in L.A. and I was just sitting in a parking lot while someone was getting something in the store. And I look over here and I see there's a whole new kind of yogurt shop in which you just give somebody your money and then you go over there and you dispense it yourself. I actually thought, I didn't even realize there was anybody in there. I thought you just walked in and took it out of the machines. I thought it was like an ATM or something. <laughs> but I walked over later and saw that there was a person there. But it was like, wow, somebody just noticed that you, know, that you could automate this. Somebody started thinking about the fact that you could automate this. And that was a real opportunity that somebody noticed. There's a a system now where you can get a lot of your legal documents done just through some internet thing that some lawyers figured out that most of this is pretty easy. We can help other people do it. Of course, they're undercutting their own profession. But that was an opportunity somebody saw. They just started thinking about, hey, I could sell this in a completely different way. And there's going to be a big market for it. You see all over our age right now, people taking opportunities because they're paying attention Look how those people are dealing with that. Look how this works. I remember a friend of mine who was really into marketing many years ago. He said, just watch. Pretty soon they'll be advertising at the the gas pump. He said, because you're caught here. And somebody before too long is going to figure out. And now, of course, it's just a nightmare. Yeah, it's just horrible. But there it is. Because he, 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 as a marketing and a businessman, he's trained himself to look for business opportunities. We can also train ourselves to look for opportunities to help other people. We can train ourselves to be observant of people's feelings and try to think how to help them. But nothing, no opportunities will ever be apparent to us unless we're putting out enough energy to, to notice them and enough magnetism to attract them. And these are not like very complicated things that you work on. You work on it a step at a time. We just work on our awareness a step at a time. And that's, we're in lesson 25. That's what this whole course has been, just step by step. All the different ways in which we take hold of the flow of our life. And when we take hold of it dynamically, then whatever karma we've had from the past, we begin to create a new reality for the future. And we begin to change our experience of what's actually going on now. And not only is it infinitely more enjoyable, but, but by very definition, it becomes more prosperous because what is happening in our life becomes increased by our energetic involvement in it. Okay? Any questions, thoughts, anything more? Okay, great souls. Next week, last lesson, number 26.